Okay, so this is going to be, Lord willing, our concluding study uh, in this uh, four-part study now that we've been looking at uh, with the title of The Coming Judgment of the Church. I'm really taking it from that verse in First Peter chapter 4 where we read, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel? Interesting question. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Again, interesting thought. Verse really is saying that the season of judgment will commence at the house of God. And again, this period of judgment has been prophesied in the Old Testament. We've seen much of this as we've gone through um, our study so far. It's something that is reiterated throughout the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to look more at this this morning and see where all this is leading. So let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is living, it is powerful. Father, we know that it tells us everything that we need to know about this life. And Lord, how to live this life, how to love you, to serve you, to know you, how to enter into a relationship with you. But Lord, it also tells us the plights of this world that has rejected you. It tells us, Lord, the the end of those that obey not the gospel. And Father, we pray this morning that as we look at these things that you help us to understand, help us to comprehend not just the details, the, the mechanics of how these things fit together, but Lord, the real import of how these things should affect our lives. Lord, as Peter asked, Lord, seeing these things shall be, Lord, what manner of persons ought we to be? And Lord, we pray that we will be godly people. Uh, stir our hearts, we pray, in this time now as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew seven thirteen, the verse that John quoted a moment ago. Uh, Enter you in at the straight gate, said Jesus, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many, I've said already, the number of times that word many occurs in Scripture is really quite troubling in regard to this whole apostasy issue with the end times. Many there be in that go there out. And because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. He goes on and says, beware of false prophets. So this isn't just looking at the world. This isn't just looking at the world out there and sinners and all that. This is looking at the, the, the congregation of believers, effectively, the church. False prophets wouldn't be a, an issue if they were completely outside, if they were in all the other religions and stuff. But we're talking about that which is going to affect the true faith. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. Notice they're coming to you. They're coming to the church. In sheep's clothing, they're going to look right. I think it was Spurgeon that once said that discernment is not knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And it says, you shall know them by their fruits. Interesting, this analogy is used so many times. We were looking at this a little bit on Thursday uh, regarding those that believe and those that don't believe. Those that have an appearance and those that really do know the Lord and are connected to him, that bear fruit. He says, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Jesus goes on and makes it clear. He says, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there's going to be people that are part of the church overall. That will talk to God in the sense that we would perceive on the outside that they have some sort of relationship with him. And yet the Lord himself says that not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. We look at the rest of scripture, we understand that unless you have a true and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, unless you have put your faith in him for your salvation, unless you have died to self, then we can't speak of ourselves as being saved. It's a gift of God. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to earn it. But there are many that pay lip service, that on the outside may seem genuine, 
But again, the fruit will tell us whether or not they are connected to that root. Verse 22 carries on. Many will say to me, notice that again, many. It's heartbreaking every time we read that word. Many will say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Well, surely if we saw somebody prophesying, they've got to be saved, haven't they? Well, no, not according to what Jesus says here. There are other powers that can allow people to what would seem to be prophesy in a way that other people may believe it to be true. It may seem genuine, but Jesus says, no, no, there will be people that will prophesy. Have we not prophesied in the name? Have we not cast out devils? Well, surely again, isn't that something we think that that's surely a sign, a wonder that proves that God is working? Well, no, not according to this. And in the name done, done many wonderful works. Once again, works themselves don't prove anything. Even miracles don't prove anything. We're going to see Antichrist is going to do all sorts of incredible miracles. So we need to be discerning with all of these things. Jesus says, Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So Jesus says very clearly, there is going to be this group within the church. They look genuine, they seem genuine, but they are not of the Lord. And we need to be very careful as we go into these days. We've seen in part one of this study that we looked at that, that every time apostasy occurs, God meets it with judgment. In the second part, we looked at an incredible model looking at Israel's history as a nation and then the history of the church as laid out for us in Revelation 2 and 3. Again, just a historic model that's given to us and we see that everything maps perfectly. That that which Israel did and the mistakes they made has been repeated by the church, despite Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10 to not make those same mistakes. Last week we were looking again at the future of the church seen through the eyes of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was prophesying to Israel and warning Israel that the judgment was coming upon them because of their iniquity, because they turned away from God, they rejected his word, they allowed abominations into their culture and they treated them as normal. I mean, this just sounds so much like the world today, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what we see. What was going on in Jeremiah's day and that led up to the um, sieges of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the judgment that God allowed on the land. We see the same thing being repeated in our days and the parallels are uncanny. You know, the, the priests and the prophets at that time were saying, oh, the Lord's not going to bring judgment, not against Jerusalem. You know, and warning people, don't, don't worry about listening to the sound of the trumpet. It's interesting how many churches deny the rapture don't want to hear the sound of the trumpet. They don't want to know the Lord is coming. All they want to do is focus upon their plans and so on. Well, what we're going to look at in this final session is this one world church. Where is all this going? How is it all going to tie together with what scripture tells us? And really, it all comes under this heading of Babylon the Great. Remind you again what Amos said. He said in verse 7 of chapter 3, Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So we're not making this stuff up. We don't have to try and invent things here because everything that we're going to look at is revealed in God's word. Now, this is the prophetic view, if you like, of those churches, Revelation 2 and 3. Just to remind you, those letters are written by Jesus to seven real churches that existed in the first century. And every letter was specific to its individual church. And yet at the same time, each letter was for whoever had an ear. If you have an ear, then it's for you too. So those letters are applicable. Each of those letters are applicable to each of us and we can learn from those things. They're also applicable to all churches. Because every one of them says, let let you hear what what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So each letter is for every church as well as its own specific church. But then these letters also depict these church ages as we've seen in our previous studies. Ephesus really took us up to the end of the first century. Really that first church, that church that had this great love, that love of espousal, and yet was so intent on doctrine and everything like that, they kind of forgot that first love and they're chided for that. Then we see the church of Smyrna. There's nothing bad said about that church. It's a church that underwent so much persecution in the first three centuries, leading up to the time of Constantine. But what an incredible time of growth for the church. Then we have this, this church of Pergamos. The name means mixed marriage. And this is where the church married into the world with Constantine and so on. Christianity becomes legalized, as we've said already. And at that point, the church starts to be able to use, Christians start to use the pagan buildings 
and adopt some of the pagan practices. And some of the things that have been um, started way back in Babylon suddenly find their way into the church at that time. And this is a horrible period of time, in a sense, as we start to see the church allow all sorts of uh, things that should never have been. And then the church of Thyatira. Well, it's uh, the beginning of the papacy, when just as Israel wanted a man to rule over them with Saul, the church ended up putting a man to rule over them, somebody that would sit in that place between man and God, effectively, where there should be no other person than Jesus Christ. But you notice that the period of Thyatira started around at 590, where the papacy really kind of began to take hold, through to the tribulation. And then also the Church of Sardis, representing the Reformation Church. I mean, some good things, of course, with the Reformation, but there was a lot of bad things. Uh, oops, go back. Uh, they didn't do enough. They didn't go the whole way, just like in Jeremiah... The, church, the people of Judah were rebuked by the Lord for seeing what had been done by backsliding Israel and they'd not learned the lessons. In fact, they'd gone further and they'd done worse things. You know, we're going to look at some of the things that came into the church and were allowed uh, during the time of the Reformation. Uh, and then we go to the time of Philadelphia, the church that seems to be even this incredible promise to escape these things. Uh, the church that will be taken out, the, church, the true church in a sense, will be raptured. And then finally, the church of Laodicea, really kind of representing the last hundred years or so. And again, those three strands, the Catholic church effectively, the Reformation church, and then the current modern church, the millennial church, however you want to rephrase it, all those will join together into becoming this one world church. This is what we see in scripture. We'll look at some of these things in more detail now as we go through. Now, this judgment is foretold. Let's look again what we're told. In Matthew 7, that verse we looked at, notice, many will say to me, in that day. It's talking about a specific time. The word again here, uh, the same word as we have, um, each time we see this, that word kairos appears in the Greek. And it's referring to a specific season. Let's look at Matthew 13. It says there, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. And when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad, the cast the bad away. And it says, so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels, notice, shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire, where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I think that's a direct reference of verse 50 to the time of tribulation. This, so many times this reference about casting it into a furnace of fire. It's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Some people think that's talking of hell. I don't think it's talking of hell. I think it's talking about the tribulation. There's a number of models we find in scripture. You think of Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They were cast into a furnace of fire back in uh, the book of Daniel. That whole thing speaks of that time of tribulation. It's a prophetic model as this world leader, Nebuchadnezzar, in that case kind of being a forerunner of Antichrist, establishing this image of himself throwing these Jews into this time of tribulation, this furnace of fire. Again, that furnace of fire, I think, depicting the the judgment that's coming in terms of the tribulation. But notice what's happening here. This isn't just talking about the the church and the world, because this, this net was cast into the sea. The sea speaks of the world, the Gentiles. A number of scriptures refer to the Gentiles in that way. So this net is bringing out of the sea of every kind. And in this net, which is effectively like the church, we're seeing good and bad within the net, within the church. And this is exactly what we see in so many scriptures. Again, Matthew 13, verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Certainly thou not so good seed in thy field, from whence then has it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. Interesting. Satan realized very early on with the church that attacking it from the outside didn't produce the results that he was after. You look at the church at Smyrna, and attacking the church, that persecution just made the church stronger. 
But when you give the church that kind of freedom and that liberty and that peace and so on, and then you allow those things to build from the inside, it's devastating. He said unto them, an enemy has done this, a servant said unto them, will they think that we go and gather them up? Should we go and pull up all the tears? Should we go around all the churches and root out everybody that's teaching and preaching false doctrine? He said no. Because if you do that, while you're gathering up the tares, you might root up the wheat with them. You see, I believe that almost in every denomination, and including even in the Catholic Church, there are true, genuine believers. I believe as those individuals grow in grace, they will desire to come out of those systems. I don't think people want to stay in those places very long as they start to read Scripture and understand what Scripture teaches. But I think in every denomination you look at, you will find genuine believers there. And the Lord is allowing these things to continue so those genuine believers don't get harmed. It's interesting. The wheat and the tares in Israel, these two crops grow very similar. And it's not until the time of the harvest you can tell the difference. They look almost identical. At the time of the harvest, the, the weight of the head of wheat causes it to bow. It kind of leans over. Whereas the tear remains bolt upright. Interesting, isn't it? It's a lovely picture. It speaks of the, the humility of genuine true believers and the pride, the arrogance of those that are not. But notice, let both grow together until the time of the harvest. God says there's going to come an end to this. There's going to come a point where he's not going to allow it any longer. That, that until. I, I'm very indebted to Chuck Misler for once saying, mark the untils you read in the Bible. Every time you read an until, mark it. It's important. And this is one of those here. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares. So the first thing that's going to happen is the tares are going to be gathered together, bind them in bundles to burn them. Get them ready to be pushed into the fire. That's what we see going on. That's what's happening now. We, we saw it, we, well, so many things over the last hundred years we could refer to, but just take the emerging church. How many churches jumped on that bandwagon and all joined together? And you could go back through church history, you could look at all sorts of things. You could look in the last 50 years and see things like Alpha and all those kind of things that many people see no problem with. And you, you look at the surface, you see the damage, the danger those things have done. Some of the books that have come out that have undermined Scripture... Things of the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life, those kind of things. Some people say, well, there's nothing wrong with them. Well, there is if you read and you look at what it's actually saying and the danger, the generation that's coming out of those things. They gather together first in tears, bind them in bonds to burn them. But notice then, but gather the wheat into my barn. What a lovely statement that is. There's a picture of the rapture of the church saying that the wheat, the true believers, in this season, in this time to come, as God starts to do all these things, as he starts to bring this judgment on the church, the wheat are going to be taken out, the true believers, and gathered together into his barn. Okay, church is a mixed bag. Okay, we see that. A number of scriptures we can refer to again. Some good, some bad. At the time, the kairos again, the season, it's the same word that we read in, in that verse in Peter that we looked at to start with. The time has come, this Kairos, the season of judgment, the, 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 the time of the harvest, of the rapture, the angels are going to do the separating. It's not for us to do the separating. We just carry on being faithful, serving the Lord, meeting together, studying his word, and encouraging as many as we can to come and join us so that we can grow together. At the time of the harvest, the angels are going to separate the good and the bad. And first the bad are gathered into bundles, and then the good are gathered into Christ's barn. The bad are then cast into the furnace. Again, that tribulation to be burnt. Ecclesiastes 1.9, again, we've looked at this verse a couple of times, but it just says, the thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Luke 17 kind of says the same thing. It says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. The rejection of, of God. The rejection of the Lord's rule. We could look at Genesis chapter 6 and see that which led to the flood as it was in the days of Noah. And we could probably spend weeks looking at all the issues surrounding 
man's attempt to manipulate and play with genetic codes and the dangers that come from that. There's huge moral implications, of course, but there's all sorts of other things associated, and maybe sometime we will do a, a study looking at some of those things. Even linking into the whole search for extraterrestrial intelligence and UFOs and all those kind of studies and everything else, there's a whole field here which would all sit under that umbrella as it was in the days of Noah. We know that the angels that had rebelled, that had fallen at that time, were involved in that dreadful build-up to the flood. I think it's going to be different in the days that we're going into. I think many of those things we'll see. There's some really good material out there. If you want to do some study on that, I can point you in the right direction. Verse 28, likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you know the details of the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what was going on. Does that look a little bit like the days in which we live? I'd say it does. And notice that they were just carrying on, oblivious really. Their lives just carried on regardless. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded with not a care in the world. They had no concept that judgment was coming because they didn't believe that judgment was coming because they had rejected God. They didn't want God in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives. Lest there be any conviction of sin. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. You could do a study. We haven't got time to go into Genesis 18 and 19. Look at the details. Go into it. Have a look at that that portion of scripture and look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the parallels are incredible. That God reveals his plan to his servants, just like he's done to us, just like his word reveals in the days that we live in, what God's going to do, the things we're looking at this morning, the rapture of the church and all these kind of things. We're told very clearly in Genesis 18.25 that God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. God can't do that because God is just. So the righteous have to be removed before judgment comes. So many times we see it with Noah. Noah is safely put in the ark. God shuts the door. God gets Noah out of the way before the judgment comes. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with those faithful in Jerusalem at the time of the the sieges and the, the captivity that the faithful were taken out of the way. They were taken to Babylon until, uh, sorry, and then the judgment came upon the land. And we'll see it with the rapture of the church as well. Notice again, it's the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah that did the separating, wasn't it? The angels that come and, and bring Lot and his family out, they did the separating, just as we're told it's going to be in the days to come. Notice that the wicked were blinded, as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, so it's going to be in the days to come. There's going to be strong delusion that people will believe a lie. Notice that it's the voice of an angel in Genesis 19.15 that announces to Lot and his family that it's time to go. The same is true for the church when we leave this earth. It's going to be the voice of an archangel and the trump of God. These parallels are incredible. And then the righteous go. They left Lot and his family. And then there was that judgment by fire. Well, again, these parallels are incredible. Uh, in terms of our future, Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Everybody's been given the opportunity. But it goes on. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That blessed hope, that's the rapture of the church. That's what we're looking for. You know, is there one problem in your life that you could think of this morning that wouldn't be solved by the rapture? If Jesus came back this morning, as we meet here, and met us in the clouds, and we were caught up to meet him, as we're told in Thessalonians we will, is there one problem you can think of that wouldn't be solved by that event? Well then, what a great hope it is. One event solves every issue, everything we face, every challenge we face. For God has not appointed us to wrath, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is appointed to wrath, but not the church. 
Not the true church, not those that believe. Let's have a look at this this plan again. We just went through this. I'm going to rush through this because we've seen already. Just as the church started with that time of espousal, so did Israel. And then that time of suffering as Israel went into the promised land, the church at that time of suffering, but the time of great victory, the complacency in Israel in the time of the judges, we see that mirrored in the time of the church. And then we see, of course, the rejection of God's rule with Saul becoming king. And the rejection, again, when the papacy put a man in place. This vicar of Christ is one of the titles of the Pope. That means somebody in place of. The division of the kingdom under Solomon into Israel, who went into idolatry in Judah, who again didn't learn from the mistakes. And the division of the church with the Catholic apostasy and then the Reformation coming out. And the Reformation church didn't really learn from the mistakes of the Catholic church either. And then this judgment that's foretold where the faithful were taken to Babylon. Again, the faithful will be raptured. And then ultimately, the apostates, the false prophets will be destroyed. Jerusalem was burned with fire back in the day. And of course, for those looking ahead to what's coming, we know we've got the tribulation coming. And then the faithful... Of Israel got to return and inherit the land and that temple was built, the Messiah taught from and once again the faithful are going to return with Jesus at the time of the second coming. We're raptured, we go to heaven, we're there for at least seven years in terms of earth's time, how it will feel in heaven I don't know. But in terms of earth years, it'll be seven years at least. And then we'll return with Jesus at the time of the second coming and a temple is going to be built that once again Messiah will teach from. The more you look at that model, the more you'll see additional parallels and things between the two. So, what's ahead of us? The church is going to be raptured, taken out of the way. Then the tribulation is going to begin at some point after that. It may be immediately after. I imagine there'll be a period of time, but I don't know how long. But this world is going to descend into effectively chaos when the church is removed. The the mystery of iniquity that it talks about in Thessalonians is going to just go full force upon this earth. As the church that has been praying and holding back these things, led by the, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is taken out. And so then we see this false church rule and reign over the kings of the earth for three and a half years. And halfway through that, they've had enough. And they destroy this false church. And the last three and a half years, Antichrist will set up his own religion effectively and he will have people worship him as God. We'll look at some of the scriptures in a moment. So reasons that the church has to be judged in the first three and a half years. And this is what we read about in Revelation 17, 18. We're going to go there in a short while. But I want to just make this very clear. Because a lot of people, because of where it fits in Scripture, Revelation 17, 18, later in the book, people think it comes later on in the tribulation. But there's a number of portions of Revelation that you can't tell everything at once. So there are some things that are chronological. And overall, the book is chronological. It starts at a certain point and follows the time frame through. But there's other bits that kind of goes back to the beginning and gives you a recap from a different perspective. Chapter 11 is one of those chapters. Chapter 17 and 18 are also those chapters where it goes back and looks at the events going on in the first period of this seven-year tribulation. So reason it has to be the first three and a half period. Well, one, the ten kings that we find about that will rule the world uh, in the days to come. We're told that they destroy Babylon, but that's not going to occur until the last three and a half years that they come to power. Okay, The kings actually will have had enough of her rule, as I said a moment ago. We're also told that trade by sea is going to be impossible during the last three and a half years. Revelation 18 tells us that those at sea will actually observe the destruction of Babylon. We'll talk about that in a, mo- in a moment. But we know that the seas are going to be turned to blood. If that's the case, it's going to make travel and trade and everything by sea impossible. So the fact that the church or this this false church will be destroyed and there are people at sea that will observe it means it must be before the last three and a half years. We also know that Antichrist is going to be worshipped by the entire world for the last three and a half years. So this church system has to be out of the way by then. It's going to set it up beautifully for Antichrist to take take on. Again, it necessitates false religion being removed before that point. And you'll get typically charts like this, and you may have seen these. And there's some really good stuff here, but typically what you'll find is that the Revelation 17 18 are placed here because of where it occurs chronologically, but it's not. It occurs in the first three and a half years for at least those reasons I've said, uh, and there'll be more if we dig into it. 
To remind you always, go back to 17, Acts 17, verse 11. You know, receive these things with readiness, but search the scriptures yourself to see if these things will be so. I challenge you to look at these in detail. You'll see, uh, as we're saying. Okay, I want to just talk a little bit about Revelation 17 and 18 themselves. A lot of people think that we have two accounts here. It's not. It's just one account. It's the destruction of this false religious system. Some people talk about a spiritual Babylon and a political Babylon. But you don't find that in the text. This is just one account of the judgment of this great harlot. In chapter 17, we're given her description. In chapter 18, we're told of her destruction. By the way, the chapter breaks were not included until the 12th century. So originally, this has just been one block of text. It's because we have them in separate chapters, people have tended to try and break them apart, make them two separate things, but they're not. Revelation 17, such an important piece of scripture. You know, it's like that missing piece of a jigsaw. You know, if I said, what is that picture going to be? I mean, you could just say it's a picture of blue sky, but until you've got that piece in the middle, you don't know. That could be a little picture of a of a dog sitting on a mat on a boat in the sea. You, you don't know what that is, because until you've got that middle bit, you don't know what it is. And, and Revelation 17 and 18 are a little bit like that. So pivotal in understanding our history and future in so many ways, the things it reveals. It explains why there's so many false religions in the world. And again, this is not often taught. It's replaced by misinformation and deceit. But it unveils a reality that I believe changes the way that we look at the world as we start to go through these things. We've got some kind of key elements or the players, if you like, if you see this is a dramatic thing um, that are presented. There's the great whore that is spoken of and uh, what we're going to do is be able to identify what she is the challenge really comes in identifying who she is, but we'll have a go at that in a moment. There's a scarlet beast. We're told of seven heads and seven mountains. There's ten horns, ten kings. And it's all symbolic, but those symbols all point to literal things. Okay. Symbol, symbols and imagery used are clearly explained in the verses that follow. So we don't have to guess. None of this we have to go and try and understand ourselves in that sense. Scripture always interprets Scripture. Okay, and remember that when John was receiving this vision on the Isle of Patmos, it was new to him as well. And John was told that he was going to be shown things that must shortly come to pass. The whole point wasn't to confuse or confound John, but to present to John in a way that he could grasp what was going to happen. The whole book of Revelation was to show him the things which must shortly come to pass. Again, 1 Corinthians 14 reminds us that verse 33 that God is not the author of confusion. A number of times people have said to me, oh, Revelation, it's a very confusing book. It's not. It's not confusing. You just need to read it in context. There are things that you need to understand other portions of Scripture. That's true. But God doesn't intend us to be confused by these things. We're supposed to understand. Okay, Revelation 17, verse 1. There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, these Wrath, the, the wrath that God is pouring out is broken down into these seven sections times four we're given. And talking to me, saying unto me, come hither and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Now, that cry we see a number of times in the book, that come here, it's not like really adding emphasis, God really wanting John to, to take note. Come here, I want to show you something, something that's really important. And John is now shown the judgment of this thing that's described as a great whore. Now, throughout Scripture, whoredom or adultery speaks of unfaithfulness to God, worshipping or serving someone or something else instead of him. And again, that was the crime of Israel in the Old Testament. Again, the models just, just play off each other. And it's graphically portrayed in books like Ezekiel and Hosea. You'll see the, the typology that's used there that, that presents it this way. The first commandment, of course, in Exodus 20.11 says that you shall have no other gods before me. That's literally in my presence, God says. Not you can have other gods, but I've just got to be in the first one, the most important one. God says you have no other gods in my presence. God doesn't want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one. God is a jealous God. Again, wants to be worshipped alone. Isaiah 40.12-31. Remind us of that if you're not sure. This many waters just speaks of worldwide influence. Again, waters, seas, speak of the world, speak of Gentiles through scripture. 
Again, that's confirmed in verse 15 for us. And this entity, this great whore, she draws people away from the worship of the one true God into spiritual adultery. And it's possibly the greatest crime, and so it deserves the strictest of judgments. Interestingly, in Exodus 21, the penalty for kidnapping was death. And as far as God's concerned, when people take his children, that's a tantamount to the same thing. Verse 2 says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it's not just the common people, but the rulers of the earth have become intoxicated by her, and she's become irresistible to them, and she's exerted power over the kings of the earth. That word fornication, by the way, comes from a Greek root word, uh, porneia. Again, it's where we get that word pornography from in today's vernacular. But it just means unlawful, intimate indulgence. Something that God does not intend. In the Bible, worshipping false concepts of God are often referred to as fornication for the unbeliever and adultery for faithful believers. Here the reference again is to spiritual fornication. And again, notice the earth, the kings of the earth have committed fornication. It implies that they were, there was a conscious decision on their part. They, they kind of were happy to get involved. For their own ends, no doubt. It's a relationship of selfish convenience that the kings of the earth allow this religious system. And just think from where we are. We're here with multiple religions around the world, which are a real problem to the governments and the kings of the earth at the moment, aren't they? Because these religions that we currently have, have rules. They have fundamentals. They have foundations, which say that certain things are not acceptable. But today's culture says, well, no, 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 everything should be permissible. You can do whatever you want. So when the governments and the the kings of the earth now come up against these religions, what are they going to do? How are they going to deal with the problems? How are they going to deal with groups that say that they don't approve of certain things, they don't want to tolerate certain things? You see, from where we are to where we get to, there's got to be an awful lot of dumbing down of these beliefs that are held not just by Christians, but by all religious groups in the world. This, uh, they were told that these kings of the earth were made drunk by the wine of a, by her fornication and so on. Uh, it's interesting, again, that idea is in Jeremiah 51. Um, it just kind of implies this state of deception and delusion. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these scriptures. So they'll all be in the slides. There'll be some of them we can skip over. Uh, I do want to take them out of the slides because if you want to go back and look at this afterwards... Um, but we read verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so we've already met this beast back in Revelation twelve thirteen, And the scarlet beast represents the devil, Antichrist, and the empire of Antichrist. Okay, the scarlet-covered beast, again, seven heads and ten horns. The scarlet beast is the devil. You can see that from Revelation 2, sorry, Revelation 12, verses 3 and 9. Okay, this scarlet beast, again, seven heads, ten horns, is told it's the devil and Satan. The scarlet beast is also Antichrist. Again, Antichrist in Revelation 13 is told he has seven heads, ten horns. Okay, and Satan gave him his power. And the scarlet beast is also symbolic of the kingdom of Antichrist. Back in Daniel, who speaks of this fourth kingdom on the earth, again, these ten horns represent, and the ten kings. Uh, you see everything tying together. So this beast that we're looking at in Revelation 17, 18, that this woman is sitting on, is symbolic of the devil, Antichrist, and his kingdom. It's all, all just, just tied together. And their mission and their purpose are one. So Antichrist is empowered by the devil, is the ruler of this kingdom, and thus we have one image of this scarlet beast depicting the whole. Again, we should also note from the context that it's the beast who is full of names of blasphemy, who has seven heads and ten horns, and not the woman. Okay, just to get the context clear. And it also should grab our attention is that the woman is riding the beast. Seemingly, she's in control. So we have to ask the question, who is she? So now we can kind of do a, a bit of a photo fit. Okay, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, colored and decked with gold, precious stones, pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So we get a lot of detail. The first identifier is it's a woman. Now there's a deliberate contrast here with back what we saw in chapter 12 of Revelation, where we see effectively mystical Eve, that, that promise that Jesus gave, or the, the Lord gave, God gave in the garden, Genesis 3.15, 
that the seed of the woman would end up with the Messiah coming into this world. And he speaks of the offspring of Eve and that line that comes all the way down that was clothed with Israel for its protection. Again, back in chapter 12 of Revelation, remember that the woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. The woman wasn't Israel, but clothed with for its protection. Okay, but this whore is representing everything that's unrighteous, and she's going to prepare the way for the false Messiah, just as Israel prepared the way for the true Messiah. Notice the second thing. That these specific colors are mentioned, arrayed in purple and scarlet. Interestingly, Adrian taught a few weeks back on the tabernacle, there's three primary colors there. Okay, we've got blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue speaks of the heavenly realm. Purple speaks of the royal realm. And scarlet speaks of the earthly realm. All of those brought together in those ideas for the tabernacle. But notice that here, blue's omitted. The heavenly realm is not included. It's just the royal and the earthly being brought together. The third thing here we have uh, is that she's rich beyond measure, decked with gold and precious stones and so on. And she has this golden cup in her hand. That's the fourth thing that we're told. Of things that are an offense to God. Again, the Jewish temple, uh, the golden cup that was there was used to hold the blood of the sacrifice. But here it's full of abominations and the filthiness of a fornication, we're told. Verse 5 says, Upon a head, a forehead was a name written, Mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So there's more clues here. There's something mysterious about her, something hidden, something spiritual. She's identified with Babylon. She's a mother, which means she must have children. Abominations started with her. She's the mother of harlots and abominations, notice. And her influence is worldwide. So scripture is giving us a lot of information about this entity, and in a sense, where it came from and how we can see it, how we can identify it. A title, again, mystery, is to be interpreted mystically or spiritually from Babylon. Again, that root word that means confusion, from Babel. And then the great, a Greek word is megas, meaning huge. And Ron Matson, when he was teaching through this some years ago here, basically said this, that you might say her title is huge spiritual confusion. What a great title, what a great summary of this this whore, this entity that is coming, because she will be huge spiritual confusion that will bring together all the religions of the world. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wonder with great admiration. And you think of all the false religions that have martyred Christians. We've been looking at the persecuted church recently. We've been seeing how much Islam has done. But you look at the history of the Catholic church and you look at what they did. And then you bring all that together and you start to get the picture. You start to think of all that every other religion has done against Christianity through history. And you start to think of the influence behind it. With the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And there's two groups, by the way, there. Notice that. It's subtle, but I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. What two groups have we got? Israel and the church. This woman, this entity, has been against Israel and against the church. And and notice what John says, and I wonder with great admiration. I mean, he's not, you know, looking at this in a kind of, wow, this is great. John's looking at this going, this is just just mind-blowing. I can't fully appreciate. She's responsible for shedding the blood of the saints, also for the blood of the martyrs. And there's some scriptures. The Jews are referred to as saints a number of times. There's, there's a, almost a subtly arrogant position the church adopts. Or whenever we see saints spoken about, we think it's the church. It's not. Israel has spoken of the saints many occasions. And then John says, I wonder with great admiration. It's, it's just, you know, he's perceived. Uh, sorry. It's like the, the, the penny drops all of a sudden. It's like the lights go on. That's the idea here. John suddenly goes, now I understand. Think of all of history being brought together at this point. And the angel said unto me, why did you marvel? Why was this such a surprise, John? He says, 
I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carried her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. This is great because the angel said, look, I'm going to explain to you now. The angel says, you know, again, just listen. John, if he'd have done his homework, probably wouldn't have been as surprised. And this is why we need to do our homework with these things. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Okay. We're given some information. When did the spirit of Antichrist manifest itself in the past? Well, the answer to the question is in the person of Judas Iscariot. Notice the statement there, whose names were not written in the book of life round from the foundation of the world. That's, that's an amazing statement because it reminds us that our names are in that book of life. And it was from the foundation of the world, even before we were born. Okay, let me talk. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. We're going to get an explanation now. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Mountains in scripture are always symbolic of kingdoms. There's a great verse in Psalm uh, 20 something, I think, three, something around there. Flee as a bird to thy mountain. Or, or the wife says, saith my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, to your kingdom. You know, it's a challenge. Sometimes we go to our own kingdom, that place where we rule. And the challenge there is, you know, why would you do that? Why would you go to the place where you rule? We need to go to the place where he rules. Now, mountains always speak of kingdoms, whether it be our own kingdom, our own rule and reign in our own lives, or whether it's a literal kingdom or whatever, but mountains depict kingdoms. It's followed by the next verse, which makes a lot of sense. And there are the seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other's not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short space. So seven kingdoms suggest that we've got seven kings, and that's exactly what we find. So they're then told that five are no longer. This is in John's day. One is in power at that time, and the seventh is yet to come. Very quickly, through history, we have to understand that everything in Scripture is Israel-centric. Okay, It's always looking at things from the eyes of Israel. So the seven kingdoms that ruled Israel, before Daniel, we had Egypt and Assyria. In Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we're told that then we have Babylon, which ruled at the time, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome, and then we have one final kingdom to come, the empire of Antichrist. Those seven heads, seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the others not yet come. Okay, The five that have fallen in John's day, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. The one that is, is Rome. And the one that's not yet come was the final empire of Antichrist, the revived Roman Empire. In whatever form, whatever shape it will come. And we're told that when he continues, he must continue a short time. Revelation uh, 13 verse 5 just tells us he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for three and a half years or 42 months. That's the last period, that's the last three and a half years that Antichrist himself will be ruling and reigning and receiving worship. Again, this church system, this hall will be judged prior to that. Verse 11, and the beast that was and is not even, he is the eighth and is of the seventh, and goes into petition. And the ten horns, which thou sawest, the ten kings, we told very clearly, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings for one hour with the beast. That means a very short space of time. These have one mind who shall give their power and their strength unto the beast. They shall make war with the lamb. I'm crazy. I just, this is one of those scriptures you just cannot comprehend. But they're going to try and make war with Jesus. And the lamb shall overcome them. No kidding. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. Who, who are they? That's us, by the way. They that are with him are called chosen and faithful. And he said unto me, The waters which thou saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We just, they're given it. You don't have to make this, you don't have to try and work this stuff out. It's given to you in the text. Again, the water is symbolic of the whole world. Okay, notice the position of the harlot. She sits on many waters. Interesting. The whole world has been under the influence of this woman. And this influence has transcended the ages. In all previous kingdoms, she has been exerting her intoxicating power on them. The ten horns which thou saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. These kings that are going to come, they're going to rule the world. They're going to get so frustrated with this religious system because of the things she wants to do and so on. And she'll make her desolate and naked and she'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. 
They are going to bring judgment. God will allow them, God will use them to do that. And God, the God has put in his, in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And that's all in Revelation 18, the judgment that's coming, and the details. Verse 18 of Revelation 17, and the woman which thou saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Who is the woman then? What is the city? The question. Well, lots of speculation over her identity. Some see it as the Roman Empire. Some would argue it's the Roman Catholic Church. Some have even suggested the United States of America. Or some have put New York City as being the city. Some have suggested revitalized nation of Babylon or Iraq. The final one world religion centered in Babylon, Iraq. It could be any of these or none of these. Let's, let's have a quick look. The most popular one that people talk about is the Roman Catholic Church, and they say that this harlot is the Roman Catholic Church. And they say that with a number of really good reasons. Rome is built on seven hills, interestingly enough. If you look at a map of Rome, you see the seven hills. And so people there deduce all these things together. But those hills, those seven mountains, were representing seven kingdoms, not just hills in one place, in one location. It's true that the Roman Catholic Church is referred to as the Mother Church, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting fit. It's true that the Roman Catholic Church does use the colours purple and scarlet. It's true that she is rich beyond measure. The wealth of the Roman Catholic Church is unestimable. And she is certainly full of filthiness and fornication. You only need to do a little bit of study in history of what the Roman Catholic Church has got involved in and the things that are done and the things that popes have allowed and got into. And certainly the Roman Catholic Church is full of mysterious inner groups and so on. And yes, indeed, she is identified with Babylon as well. And we could certainly argue that the Roman Catholic Church is, in many respects, a a mother of harlots and abominations. You know, almost all denominational churches came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And she's certainly responsible for many abominations. And yes, she does have... Huge influence. She sits on many waters. So this is why many people, and the fact that she has shed the blood of Jews and Christians, many people identify this heart with the Roman Catholic Church. But you see, the Roman Catholic Church did not originate abominations. Nor has she existed throughout the history of the world to deceive the nations. The power that has dominated nations predates Rome. It can be traced back to Babylon. See, after the flood, Satan launched his threefold stratagem, a far more subtle attempt to try and stop the seed of the woman coming. World government was one attempt that was to manipulate mankind against the seed, false religion to deceive mankind into following a false seed, and then the seek and destroy plan where he sent again more of these fallen angels and the giants we read about just to really try and annihilate the threat of the real seed coming. Again, world government was abruptly halted at the Tower of Babel, but we're seeing it all come back round again today and with what's going on in Europe. We haven't got time. I was going to spend some time digging into that because of Brexit and all the other things. It's very topical. Maybe some other time we'll look at that. But I think probably a lot of us are already aware of how much the European system has built its model based upon ancient Babylon. Even the building in Strasbourg has been intentionally designed to look like the Tower of Babel from that painting and you may be familiar with those things. It is being re-established now, world government, after all these years, after all this time. And they will take up arms against the seed, which is another reason why we need to be out of that. We need to keep praying over the next few weeks as this uh, government in shambles that it's in gets us out of Europe. False religion. This is a satanic stroke of genius, to be honest, because this is what we're talking about. It was established at Babel, Babylon. Cush, who was responsible for building the tower, was the grandson of Noah, and then his son, Nimrod, was a first world dictator. Nimrod apparently was killed whilst out hunting. Some reports suggest it was Shem, because he was so outraged by his iniquity, his rebellion against God. But uh, Nimrod had a, a wife at the time, Semiramis. And when Nimrod is killed, Semiramis concocts a plan. I'll read to you briefly from Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons. He says this, 
If there was one who was more deeply concerned in the tragic death of Nimrod than another, it was his wife Semiramis, who from an originally humble position had been raised to share with him the throne of Babylon. What in his emergency shall she do? Shall she quietly forego the pomp and pride to which she had been raised? No. Though the death of her husband had given a rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in flight. In life, her husband had been honoured as a hero. In death, she would have him worshipped as a god. Yea, the woman's promised seed, Zoroaster. You start to see from this point the source of all pagan and false religions. But rather than give up her throne, Semiramis told the story that her husband Nimrod, though dead, was now being brought back to life in her baby son. She was pregnant at the time. And so begins, way, way, way before Jesus comes, the worship of mother and child. Why? Because Satan understood from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman was going to be the saviour. So by putting a counterfeit in place and spreading out this, this message effectively around the world, it was a fantastic smokescreen that was being laid down. Both Nimrod, supposedly now reincarnated his own son, and Semiramis became worshipped as gods, she being known as the Queen of Heaven. She was referred to in Jeremiah. Her son, who she named Tammuz, was hailed as the promised seed. Even Israel got involved in worshipping these things. And almost all false religion has come from this origin. Thousands of years before the real seed, Jesus came, false religions worshipping the mother and child were spreading out all around the world. I'm going to leave those details there. You can see the places all around the world where these things were going on. Alexander Hislop says this. He says, even in Tibet, in China, and Japan, the Jesuit missionaries were astonished to find that the counterpart of the Roman Catholic Madonna and a child as devoutly worshipped as in papal Rome itself. Once again, I mean, this was all starting to to take root. Interestingly as well, the Maseroth that told God's plan of redemption in the stars also became corrupted into the Zodiac. And again, it's the same in all cultures around the world. It demonstrates a single point of origin. Things like Christmas, Easter, Lent, Lady Day, the Rosary, even the sign of the cross comes from the tea in Tammuz. Other religions have this and use it. The worship of relics, doctrine of purgatory, the idea of an elite priesthood, the sacrifice of the mass, and all these other things had their origin in Babylon. And this false religious system that had led people away from the worship of the true God and symbolizes this woman has been skillfully established by Satan since the time of the Tower of Babel, with the one purpose of uniting all mankind and thus reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the people. Once mankind has been reunited again through this false religious system, Satan will have no further use for it, and it will then cause all mankind to worship him in the person of Antichrist. You see the plan? You see what Satan has been doing all the way through by laying down these false religions, this kind of smokescreen to lead people away, now to try and bring everything back together into a one world religion, infiltrating the church, infiltrating even other religions and and causing them to uh, dumb down their theology, their, their belief, their principles. The identity of the city. Well, Babylon is the city, I believe, not Rome. For a number of reasons. Jeremiah 50, 51 talk about the destruction of Babylon in ways that we don't, we've never seen historically. Same in Isaiah 13 and 14. There are parallel passages to this. And they deal with the destruction of the literal Babylon. It's not taken place to this day. Babylon has been inhabited throughout the ages. Cyrus made it his capital and followed them by Alexander the Great. If you look on a map, you look from the sky, you can come down, you look at the area... And even Saddam Hussein, interesting enough, was in the process of rebuilding a lot of Babylon, as it was. He rebuilt and uncovered the ruins of the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. There's the base of what was believed to be the Tower of Babel, just outside the city itself. Again, this is quite possibly the area somewhere around here, on these plains where that image of Nebuchadnezzar would have been set up, where Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishraiah were, were taken out and told to worship, and all the people were to fall down. Okay, this is on the banks of the Euphrates River. Notice that even to this day, right by the side of this, there's factories, there's civilization, people live there. That's the game base of the Tower of Babel. Lots of business, you can see cars, parks and car parks. The, the Bible speaks of an utter destruction and no life there afterwards. Well, that's not what we see here. 
These prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. This is just down the road, effectively, in terms of, of an accurate. If you look at that bridge, it's only 4.11 miles um, from that bridge to Babel itself, the, the, the base of the tower. Right? If you know anything about scripture, you know that the ancient Babylon was 15 miles square. Well, this was completely within the side, the area. This has not been destroyed, as, as scripture speaks. I'm not going to have time. Read Zechariah chapter 5, look there, a very provocative passage of scripture that suggests a return of false religion to Babylon in the last days. Very interesting. I'm not going to read through this because of the time. We don't need to go through all the text. You can read through chapter 18 and after these things, okay? Um, what things? After Mystery Babylon? No. The subject's not changing to polit- political Babylon. That, that's a, a misnomer. And there's no such thing as a mystery Babylon. Okay, it's mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. Okay, it's something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. And the mystery, again, denotes the spiritual influence of the city that's been exerted throughout the ages since the time of the Tower of Babel. There's another problem with the idea that there are two Babylons, uh, one spiritual, one political, is that of judgment. Because John's invited to come and see the judgment of the great whore in Revelation 17, and we don't see it. You don't see it until you get to chapter 18. Chapter 17 just tells us who she is, and that she will be future tense, destroyed by the ten kings. And that's what you see in chapter 18. Again, no chapter breaks in the original. So Babylon is both a woman representing the spiritual city, uh, spiritual system, and a city. Again, the same idea is carried on in this chapter, and that personal pronoun "her" is used 29 times in chapter 18. The fact that we're viewing a literal city is also alluded to at least 19 times. Again, I'm not going to read the text. Um, Again, we witness the destruction of Babylon. This double reference fallen is fallen that you see there just implies suddenness. The kind of destruction that fits perfectly with what Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied that's not yet occurred historically. And the call to come out from this system. The message is very clear. It had nothing to do with this woman, this false religious system. And it's referring to my people. All those who had classed themselves as God's people. And again, the danger is to assume that the warning is not for us. We said this right at the start. The danger with deception is that you think you can't be deceived. The moment you think you can't be deceived, the moment we think as a fellowship we can't be deceived, we've been deceived. Because we can. And so we need to always keep Scripture as our guide, as our guard. Seven times in Scripture, God's people are warned to flee from her. There's a list of the Scriptures there. And in Matthew 24, Jesus warns of this great spiritual deception that's going to occur in the last days. It's going to lead many people astray. Paul warns of it many, many times. Uh, that again, that many that we've seen, uh, so many people are going to fall for this deception, and the de- deception is going to grow. The world has committed fornication with this false religious system, and as it's growing and pulling together, but for the believer to be entangled amounts to adultery. And Paul says, for us, he says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Roman Catholic Church, I believe, is the clothing that will enable this system to fully take hold of the religions of the world. Because of the Roman Catholic Church's influence and ability to pull together so many faiths and so many religions, the Pope's influence is colossal. And just as in Revelation 12, the seed of the woman leading to the Messiah was clothed with Israel to protect it, to allow that to happen. So I believe that this woman is decked in gold and silver and precious stones and clothed in this color. This this religious entity has been clothed with the Vatican Church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, to allow the job to be done. And what started in ancient Babylon will be concluded, I believe, in literal Babylon. I believe we will see, I mean, many people got very excited when Saddam Hussein was starting to rebuild all those things and said, look, it's about to happen. But, you know, it wouldn't take an awful lot for the UN, and there's already been talk of this, by the way, this isn't just a, a flippant comment, for the UN to uproot and to find new headquarters to move out of America. And there's a great place sitting there around the banks of the Euphrates, right in the middle of what seems to be a very tentious place at the moment. 
and even the news in the last 24 hours with these drone attacks and the oil fields in Saudi Arabia and so on. You know, that whole region could do with some stabilizing influence. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what, what happens with all this in the, the days to come. But the conclusion of this study is that there is huge deception out there. And it seems so subtle. And a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yes, it does. Because notice how many times many are going to be caught up in this. And I don't want those many to include any of our friends or our families. Any people we had opportunity to reach and say, do you know what the Bible says? Do you read the Bible? Do you love the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Does your church teach scripture? And if they don't, bring them along here. Again, we can't uproot the tears. That's not our job. But we can certainly work with the wheat. We can encourage them. They all need watering. We need watering. We need the water of God's word. This is our hearts. Father, thank you for this time that we've had over the last few weeks to just look at these things, to be reminded of what your word says, of what is coming upon this world. Lord, we, we recognize as we see, Lord, how many of your people, of Israel, of the church, Lord, and how many of those have had their blood shed by this false religious system in whatever form or guise it's presented itself throughout history. And Lord, how we recognize that you will bring judgment. Oh Lord, how sad it is that so many of the so-called churches we have in this land today that are meeting this morning are teaching all sorts of things to try and make people feel better, but they're not teaching the truth. They're not teaching your word. And Father, we pray for the saints in those places. We pray, Father, for those that need to come out from among this system. We pray, Lord, that you would bless every church in this land, every pastor that teaches and preaches your word faithfully, every church that holds to the truth of your word, that loves your word, Lord, that exalts your word. Your word says of itself that you have exalted your word above your name. Lord, help us to be available for you to use as you choose. But Lord, most importantly, to be faithful and to keep individually and as a fellowship our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the true Jesus revealed in Scripture, the one who is the word of God made flesh. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.